The men who create power make an indispensable contribution to the nation's greatness. But the men who question power make a contribution just as indispensable. For they determine whether we use power or power uses us. When power leads man towards arrogance, poetry reminds him of his limitations. When power narrows the areas of man's concern, poetry reminds him of the richness and diversity of his existence. When power corrupts, poetry cleanses. I heard this quote from President John F. Kennedy and knew you'd want to hear it too. JFK, James Baldwin, Angela Bassett, and more. Hashtag words matter. This week on the Janice Adams Show. Trying to make it real compared to what... First, the news. Trying to make it real compared to what... Hi, I'm Janice Adams. For this week's show, another special COVID-19 edition. There I was, hashtag staying home, disturbed yet energized by all that's going on. You know the feeling. I began thinking about the challenges and the opportunities ahead. If we're honest with ourselves, we know this country, this world, is never getting back to normal. The what was is just that. More than 308,000 deaths worldwide ought to tell us that. Unbelievably, more than a quarter of those deaths are in the U.S. alone. 88,250 and counting as I tape this show. Daring to dream a new world better, fairer, more equitable, responsible, and respectful than the old one, I came upon a speech by President John F. Kennedy, delivered at Amherst College on October 26, 1973. The occasion was an event in honor of the late poet Robert Frost. Questioning power is an indispensable contribution to the nation, said the president. Quote, for those who question determine whether we use power or power uses us. Wow, that's the question driving today's Janice Adams show. Hashtag words matter. Stopping by the woods on a not-so-snowy eve. Thank you, Robert Frost. Here's President Kennedy. The man who create power make an indispensable contribution to the nation's greatness. But the men who question power make a contribution just as indispensable, especially when that questioning is disinterested. For they determine whether we use power or power uses us. Our national strength matters, but the spirit which informs and controls our strength matters just as much. And it's hardly an accident that Robert Frost coupled poetry and power, for he saw poetry as the means of saving power from itself. When power leads man towards arrogance, poetry reminds him of his limitations. When power narrows the areas of man's concern, poetry reminds him of the richness and diversity of his existence. When power corrupts, poetry cleanses. If sometimes our great artists have been the most critical of our society, it is because their sensitivity and their concern for justice, which must motivate any true artist, makes him aware that our nation falls short of its highest potential. I see little of more importance to the future of our country and our civilization than full recognition of the place of the artist. If art is to nourish the roots of our culture, society must set the artist free to follow his vision wherever it takes him. We must never forget that art is not a form of propaganda. It is a form of truth. In serving his vision of the truth, the artist best serves his nation. And the nation which disdains the mission of art invites the fate of Robert Frost's hired man the fate of having nothing to look backward to with pride and nothing to look forward to with hope. 
I look forward to a great future for America, a future in which our country will match its military strength with our moral restraint, its wealth with our wisdom, its power with our purpose. I look forward to an America which will not be afraid of grace and beauty, which will protect the beauty of our natural environment. I look forward to an America which commands respect throughout the world, not only for its strength, but for its civilization as well. And I look forward to a world which will be safe, not only for democracy and diversity, but also for personal distinction. That was President John F. Kennedy speaking in 1963. Hashtag words matter. So too the context of time. As Kennedy was delivering that speech, the civil rights movement was full throttle. The now historic March on Washington had just taken place. Among the movement's luminaries was Fannie Lou Hamer, a sharecropper turned activist for the right to vote or, more importantly, vote out segregationist diehards. She founded the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And what does all that have to do with us now? The Dixiecrat South of then is today's Republican-led stronghold with legislators actively orchestrating voter suppression, taking America back to the days Mrs. Hamer fought to fight to within an inch of her life. Mr. Chairman, and to the Credentials Committee, my name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, and I live at 626 East Lafayette Street, Roosevelt, Mississippi, Sunflower County, the home of Senator James O. Eastland and Senator Stennis. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola by policemen, highway patrolmen, and they only allowed two of us in to take the literacy test at the time. After we had taken this test and started back to Roosevelt, we were held up by the city police and the state highway patrolmen and carried back to Indianola, where the bus driver was charged that day with driving a bus the wrong color. After we paid the fine among us, we continued on to Roosevelt where I had worked as a timekeeper and sharecropper for 18 years. I was met there by my children. They told me the plantation owner was angry because I had gone down, tried to register. After they told me, my husband came and said the plantation owner was raising cane because I had tried to register. And before he quit talking, the plantation owner came and said, Fannie Lou, did Pap tell you what I said? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I mean that, that if you don't go down and withdraw your registration, you will have to leave. That then if you go down and withdraw, that you still might have to go because we are not ready for that in Mississippi. I had to leave that same night. On the 10th of September, 1962, 16 bullets were fired into the home of Mr. and Mrs. Robert Tucker for me. That same night, two girls were shot in Roosevelt, Mississippi. Also, Mr. Joe McDonald's house was shot in. June the 9th, 1963, I had attended a voter registration workshop was returning back to Mississippi. Ten of us was traveling by the Continental Trailway bus. When we got to Winona, Mississippi, which is Montgomery County, two of the people wanted to use the washroom. The four people that had gone in to use the restaurant was ordered out. 
I got off of the bus to see what had happened. And one of the ladies said it was a state highway patrolman and a chief of police out of the south. I saw when they began to get the five people in a highway patrolman's car. And the man told me I was under arrest. I was carried to the county jail. They left some of the people in the booking room and began to place us in cells. I could hear the sounds of licks and horrible screams. And I could hear somebody say, can you say yes, sir, nigger? They beat her I don't know how long. And it wasn't too long before three white men came to my cell. One of these men was a state highway patrolman. And he asked me where I was from. And I told him, Roosevelt. He said, we're going to check this. And they left my cell and it wasn't too long before they came back. He said, you are from Roosevelt, all right, and he used a curse word. And he said, we're going to make you wish you was dead. I was carried out of that cell into another cell where they had two Negro prisoners. The state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro to take the blackjack. The first Negro prisoner ordered me by orders from the state highway patrolman for me to lay down on a bunk bed on my face. And I laid on my face, the first Negro began to beat. And I was beat by the first Negro until he was exhausted. The state highway patrolman ordered the second Negro to take the blackjack. The second Negro began to beat and I began to work my feet. And the state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro had beat to sit on my feet, to keep me from working my feet. I began to scream and one white man got up and began to beat me in my head and tell me to hush. One white man, my dress had worked up high. I pulled my dress down and he pulled my dress back up. I was in jail when Matthew Evers was murdered. All of this is on account of we want to register to become first class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Thank you. Civil rights movement icon Fannie Lou Hamer. And what about the historic role of women in politics? Earlier this season on the show, we visited the Susan B. Anthony Home and Museum in Rochester, New York. Here's Museum President Deborah Hughes. This is the house that Susan B. Anthony moved into with her mother and sister in 1866, so shortly after the Civil War. And for the next 40 years, this was her home base even though she traveled around the country and internationally teaching and, and agitating for freedom, uh, this was what she considered the, the place that was home. And it's also a place where she was arrested for voting in 1872. It's the place where she breathed her last breath in 1906. And it's a place where they wrote The History of Woman Suffrage, several volumes, and where her biography was written by Ida Houston Harper with Susan B. Anthony standing over Ida Houston Harper's shoulder saying the things she wanted to have included. So this is a place where a great reformer found her grounding and her connection. When they were having the convention in uh, Seneca Falls, Susan B. Anthony was not there. And actually, they convened that convention again here in Rochester, and her mother and father and sister went, and Susan was out at the farm. And uh, we have a letter from her again in the 1850s where she's writing to a cousin saying, what should I do? Should I put on pantaloons and take up the women's rights movement? She got radicalized, actually, in the temperance movement because she went to a convention, and the daughters of temperance would meet with the sons of temperance, but they had separate uh, units. And she rose because she wanted to make a statement about social reform, and the gentleman who was presiding said the women were there to listen and learn, but not to be heard from. And that was an epiphany for her. That was the moment that she decided if she wanted to have any role in social reform, she had to be able to have the power of a voice and a vote. And so for her, the, the vote was not the end all. It was the means to be able to participate in society and change society for the better. Very shortly after that, she had defined the, the three important words, organize, 
educate and agitate. And that's what she believed had to happen first, that you, you had to get people together, you had to connect them, you had to educate them about what the issues were, and then you had to agitate them. Because a lot of great thinkers would understand there was a problem, but they wouldn't do anything about it. And so that strategy was her strategy for all of her social reforms. And she and Frederick Douglass often would write to each other and talk about getting up in agitation. And that was really to take the social justice to the level where not only did you hear about the wrong that was happening, but you were so appalled by what you were hearing that you got engaged in making it change. One of the speeches that I find most connects us today is a speech that she gave when there was a meeting of the Women's Loyalty League. It was during the time of the Civil War, and they had called a national convention of women and to, to talk about how they were going to address this moment in time. And for Susan B. Anthony, she felt that that was the moment to, to put an end to slavery. And for some of the other women gathered, it was about something else. It might have been about state rights. It might have been about uh, other, other issues. And for her, that, that was not what this clarion call was all about. And some are saying, well, we want to go back to the country the way it was. And Susan B. Anthony gives a powerful speech where she says she, she does not want to go back. She does not want that union. And she actually describes, and she says, from the moment that the first person was put in shackles in Africa and brought to this country, we've been at war. And this is the time to end that war. And she says, I do not want a union that is a sham. I want a union that is truly a union. Thank you, Susan B. Anthony. Deborah Hughes, president of the Susan B. Anthony Museum. And what became of Anthony's Daughters of the Movement? Shirley Chisholm, our first African-American congresswoman, January 25th, 1972. I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. I am not the candidate of black America, although I am black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman, and I'm equally proud of that. I am not the candidate of any political bosses or fat cats or special interests. I stand here now without endorsements from many big-name politicians or celebrities or any other kind of prop. I do not intend to offer to you the tired and glib cliches which for too long have been accepted part of our political life. I am the candidate of the people of America. (laughs) Fellow Americans, we have looked in vain for the courage, the spirit, the character, and the words to lift us, to bring out the best in us, to rekindle in each of us our faith in the American dream. Yet all that we have received in return is just another smooth exercise in political manipulation, deceit and deception, callousness and indifference to our individual problems, and the disgusting playing of divisive politics pitting the young against the old, labor against management, north against south, black against white. The abiding concern of this administration has been one of political expediency rather than the needs of man's nature. I cannot believe that this administration would have ever been elected four years ago If we had known then what we know today, I have faith in the American people. I believe that we are smart enough to correct our mistakes. I believe we are intelligent enough to recognize the talent, energy, and dedication which all Americans, including women and minorities, have to offer I know that millions of Americans from all walks of life agree with me that leadership does not mean putting the air to the ground to follow public opinion, but to have the vision of what is necessary and the courage to make it possible. Oh my, Shirley Chisholm, the 
first American woman presidential major party candidate. Hashtag words matter. Coming up, Malcolm X, Dr. King, Angela Bassett, and more after the break. Trying to make it real compared to what... Men who create power make an indispensable contribution to the nation's greatness. But the men who question power make a contribution just as indispensable. For they determine whether we use power or power uses us. President John F. Kennedy and others. Hashtag words matter. Saturday at four on the next Janice Adams Show. Trying to make it real compared to what... We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with a special COVID-19 hashtag staying home edition inspired by this quote from President Kennedy. When power corrupts, poetry cleanses. Cleansing the space in word, thought, and deed. Today's show, hashtag words matter. On April 4th, 1967, Dr. Martin Luther King delivered this sea change of a speech beyond Vietnam when silence is betrayal. A time comes when silence is betrayal. That time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. The truth of these words is beyond doubt. But the mission to which they call us is a most difficult one. Moreover, when the issues at hand seem as perplexing as they often do, in the case of this dreadful conflict, we are always on the verge of being mesmerized by uncertainty. But we must move on. Some of us who have already begun to break the silence of the night have found that the calling to speak is often a vocation of agony. But we must speak. And we must rejoice as well, for surely this is the first time in our nation's history that a significant number of its religious leaders have chosen to move beyond the prophesying of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of a firm dissent based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. <clears throat> Perhaps a new spirit is rising among us. If it is, let us trace its movements and pray that our own inner being may be sensitive to its guidance. For we are deeply in need of a new way beyond the darkness that seems so close around us. Over the past two years, as I have moved to break the betrayal of my own silences and to speak from the burnings of my own heart, as I have called for radical departures from the destruction of Vietnam, many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. That is, at the outset, a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the build-up in Vietnam, and I watched this program broken and eviscerated, as if it were some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor so long as adventures like Vietnam continued to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor 
and to attack it as such. Perhaps a more tragic recognition of reality took place when it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and to die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Holland. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. And so we watch them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village, but we realize that they would hardly live on the same block in Chicago. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. My third reason moves to an even deeper level of awareness, for it grows out of my experience in the ghettos of the North over the last three years, especially the last three summers, as I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men. I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems, I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. For the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of the hundreds of thousands trembling under our violence, I cannot be silent. One year to the day after that speech, Dr. King was assassinated. Unsilent, he had been raising his voice for sanitation workers, the frontline workers of his day, and ours. Earlier in this pre-COVID academic year, at the State University of New York at New Paltz, I had the pleasure of sharing a distinguished speaker series stage with a fellow alum and daughter of Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz. Here's President Donald P. Christian. Please join me again in welcoming Janice Adams and Ilyasa Shabazz. Ilyasa, yes. here we go. I mean, to be or not to be, that is the question. Yes, it is. Whether it is nobler in the mind, in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows oh, of outrageous, outrageous fortune, fortune or to or take to arms against the sea of troubles and, and by, by opposing, opposing end them. <laughs> you know, when I was in high school, I had a professor that really left such an impact on me. And one of the things that we had to memorize, one of the soliloquies was Hamlet. And I really didn't understand why at the time, but as my journey began, I realized how much of an impact that soliloquy had because what it basically says is, we are either going to be a part of the problem Right? Or we're going to be a part of the solution. And so that is something that really resonates with me. And I also found in one of my father's lectures at Oxford University that he too really liked this particular excerpt of Hamlet. 
I read once, passingly, about a man named Shakespeare. I only read about him passingly, but I remember one thing he wrote that kind of moved me. Uh, he put it in the mouth of Hamlet, I think it was, who said, to be or not to be. He was in doubt about something. <laughs> Whether it was nobler in the mind of man to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, moderation, or to take up arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing, end them. And I go for that. If you take up arms, you'll end it. But if you sit around and wait for the one who's, who's in power to make up his mind that he should end it, you'll be waiting a long time. And in my opinion, the young generation of whites, blacks, brown, whatever else there is, you're living at a time of extremism, a time of revolution, a time when there's got to be a change. People in power have misused it, and now there has to be a change, and a better world has to be built, and the only way it's going to be built with it, with it, it, is with extreme methods. And I, for one, will join in with anyone, don't care what color you are, as long as you want to change this miserable condition that exists on this earth. Thank you. Malcolm X's Oxford Debate, December 3rd, 1964. Not unlike Dr. King, unfortunately, two months later, Malcolm X, too, was assassinated. Among their friends and admirers, James Baldwin, speaking here at UC Berkeley on King's Birthday, 1979, paying tribute to Malcolm X. I'm going to improvise like a writer on some assumptions. And though I feel a little uneasy in saying this, nevertheless, what a writer is obliged at some point to realize is that he's involved in a language which he has to change. For example, for a black writer, especially in this country, to be born into the English language is to realize that the assumptions of the language, the assumptions on which the language operates, are his enemy. <laughs> when Othello kills Desdemona, for example, he says, I threw away a pearl richer than all my tribe. I was very young when I read that. And I wondered about that. Richer than my tribe? <laughs> I really had to think about being as black as sin, as black as night, black-hearted. And in order to deal with that, really, to deal with that, I dropped into a silence in which I heard the beat of the language of the people who had produced me. When I was young, there were no black writers as models and white writers could not be models either. I did not agree at all with the moral predicament of Huckleberry Finn concerning nigger Jim. <laughs> it was not, after all, a question about whether I should be sold back into slavery. <laughs> I want to try to shift a certain assumption. I want to suggest that instead of, as we have now for far too long, according to me, instead of speaking about the civil rights movement, which is an American phrase, which I'm going to go into in a moment, which upon examination, means nothing at all. Let us pretend that I stand before you as a witness and let us pretend that everyone under the sound of my voice is in the same condition. I'm a witness to and a survivor of the latest slave rebellion. I put it that way because Malcolm X and I met many years ago when Malcolm was doing a debate with a very young sit-in student and Malcolm was a black Muslim and the radio station called me to moderate this discussion which I did 
I was not needed, I must tell you. Malcolm was one of the most beautiful and one of the most gentle men I met in all my life. He asked the boy a question, which I now present to you. If you are a citizen, why do you have to fight for your civil rights? If you're fighting for your civil rights, that means you're not a citizen. We are still governed by the slave codes. Now, when I say a slave rebellion, I mean that what is called the civil rights movement was really insurrection. Author and activist James Baldwin, hashtag words matter. That's today's show. Putting a contemporary fine point on it, here's Chris Rock. This is the wildest, craziest Oscars to ever host because we got all this, this controversy. There's no, no black nominees, you know? Why this Oscars, you know? It's the 88th Academy Awards. It's the 88th Academy Awards, which means this whole no black nominees thing has happened at least 71 other times. Okay? You got to figure that it happened in the 50s, in the 60s. You know, like, you know, in the 60s, one of those years, Sydney didn't put out a movie. I'm sure, I'm sure there were no black nominees some of those years, say 62 or 63, and black people did not protest. Why? Because we had real things to protest at the time. You know? And we had real things to protest. You know, we're too busy being raped and lynched to care about who won best cinematographer. <laughs> you know, when, you, when your grandmother's swinging from a tree, it's really hard to care about best documentary foreign short. <laughs> but what happened this year? What happened? People went mad, you know? Spike got mad, and Sharpton got mad, and Jada went mad, and Will went mad, everybody went mad, you know? It's quite like, you want black nominees every year. <laughs> you need to just have black categories. That's what you need. You need to have black categories. You, you already do it with men and women. Think about it. There's no real reason for there to be a man in a woman category in acting. It's track, it's not, come on. There's no reason. It's not track and field. You, you don't have to separate them. You know, Robert De Niro's never said, I better slow this acting down so Meryl Streep could catch up. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not at all, man. But hey, we're here to honor actors. We're here to honor actors. We're here to honor film, you know. But and there's a lot of snubs, a lot of snubs. But one of the biggest snubs no one's talking about. My favorite actor in the world is Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti, I believe, is the greatest actor in the world. Think about what Paul Giamatti has done the last couple of years. Last year, he's in 12 Years a Slave, hates black people. This year, he's in Straight Outta Compton, loves black people. <laughs> last year, he's whooping Lapita. This year, he's crying at Easy E's funeral. Now, that's range. Yeah, Ben Affleck can't do that. But what I'm trying to say is, you know, it's not about boycott anything. It's just we want opportunity. We want the black actors to get the same opportunities as white actors. That's it. That's it. You know, just you know, not just once. You know, Leo gets a great part every year, and and you know, and you know, everybody. Look, 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 all you guys get great parts all the time. But what about the black actors? Another big thing tonight is you're not allowed, somebody told me this, you're not allowed to ask women what they're wearing anymore. It's the whole thing, you know, ask her more. You have to ask her more. Now, you know, it's like, you ask the men more. Hey, everything's not sexism. Everything's not racism. They ask the men more because the men are all wearing the same outfits, okay? <laughs> Every guy in there is wearing the exact same thing. You know, if George Clooney showed up with a lime green tux on and a swan coming out his ass, somebody
Everybody would go, what you wearing, George? Hey, welcome to the 88th Oscar. Uh-oh, Chris Rock. Hashtag words matter. Coming up, Angela Bassett, Tony Morrison, and President Barack Obama after the break. Trying to make it real compared to what... here on the Janice Adams Show with a special COVID-19 hashtag staying home edition, hashtag words matter, and bring it all home. This year's recipient of the Black Girls Rock Icon Award, the incomparable Angela Bassett. I'm often asked in interviews if my portraying smart, strong women throughout my career has been on purpose. And thinking about what to say to you tonight, the word purpose and what it means has filled my spirit. We all have purpose, even if we're still striving to understand what that is. When I decided as a teenager that acting would be my path, whether I recognized it or not, I was walking towards my purpose. As a young actress trying to make my way, survival figured into the equation, but not so much that I was ever willing to compromise my integrity. It hasn't always been easy, and there have been tough times, days when the phone didn't ring, even after what's love got to do with it, as well as moments of uncertainty and of doubt. But what women like my mother, Betty Jane, and my Aunt Golden taught me is that there will be times when you seemingly face insurmountable obstacles, but that's when you dig deep into your soul for the courage and the fortitude. I accept this award in the names of the iconic women who have inhabited me who have empowered me, inspired me, strengthened me, and elevated me. Thank you, Rosa Parks. Thank you, Tina Turner. Thank you, Coretta Scott King, Betty Shabazz, Katherine Jackson. Thank you, Voletta Wallace. I say their names because when you show gratitude, you're able to remember that you didn't arrive in this place on your journey by yourself. Oh, you had help. You had support. You had guidance, and it's this community that feeds our souls when we're running on empty. So when you're told you're not good enough, you tell them, not only am I good enough, I'm more than enough. Angela Bassett, hashtag words matter. Tony Morrison, winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature delivers her Nobel Lecture in Stockholm, Sweden on December 7, 1993. Once upon a time, there was an old woman, blind but wise. Or was it an old man? A guru, perhaps, or a griot soothing restless children. I've heard this story or one exactly like it in the lore of several cultures. Once upon a time, there was an old woman, blind, wise. In the version I know, the woman is the daughter of slaves, black, American, and lives alone in a small house outside of town. Her reputation for wisdom is without peer and without question. Among her people, she is both the law and its transgression. The honor she is paid and the awe in which she is held reach beyond her neighborhood to places far away to the city where the intelligence of rural prophets is the source of much amusement. One day, the woman is visited by some young people who seem bent 
on disproving her clairvoyance and showing her up for the fraud they believe she is. Their plan is simple. They enter her house and ask the one question, the answer to which rides solely on her difference from them, a difference they regard as a profound disability, her blindness. They stand before her, and one of them says, Old woman, I hold in my hand a bird. Tell me whether it is living or dead. She doesn't answer, and the question is repeated. Is the bird I am holding living or dead? She still doesn't answer. She's blind. She can't see her visitors, let alone what is in their hands. She doesn't know their color, their gender, or their homeland. She only knows their motive. The old woman's silence is so long, the young people have trouble holding their laughter. Finally, she speaks, and her voice is soft but stern. I don't know, she says. I don't know whether the bird you are holding is dead or alive. But what I do know is that it is in your hands. It is in your hands. Toni Morrison. And in closing, when the National Museum of African American History and Culture opened its doors on September 25, 2016, it had been an idea a century in the making. A history of mileposts, 400 years in the staking. And there stood the president. No one could miss the significance of the moment. Least of all, Barack Hussein Obama. James Baldwin once wrote, For while the tale of how we suffer and how we are delighted and how we may triumph is never new, it always must be heard. Today, as so many generations have before, we gather on our national mall to tell an essential part of our American story one that has at times been overlooked. We come not just for today, but for all time. Below us, this building reaches down 70 feet, its roots spreading far wider and deeper than any tree on this mall. And on its lowest level, after you walk past remnants of a slave ship, after you reflect on the immortal declaration, that all men are created equal, you can see a block of stone. On top of this stone sits a historical marker, weathered by the ages. And that marker reads, General Andrew Jackson and Henry Clay spoke from this slave block during the year 1830. I want you to think about this. Consider what this artifact tells us about history, about how it's told. On a stone where day after day, for years, men and women were torn from their spouse or their child, shackled and bound and bought and sold and bid like cattle, on a stone worn down by the tragedy of over a thousand bare feet. For a long time, the only thing we considered important, the singular thing we once chose to commemorate as history, with a plaque, were the unmemorable speeches of two powerful men. 
And so this national museum helps to tell a richer and fuller story of who we are. A great nation doesn't shy from the truth. It strengthens us. It emboldens us. It should fortify us. The story told here doesn't just belong to black Americans. It belongs to all Americans. For the African-American experience has been shaped just as much by Europeans and Asians and Native Americans and Latinos. We have informed each other. Come here and see the power of your own agency. Young people, come here and see your ability to make your mark. Let us now open this museum to the world. Join us in ringing a bell from the First Baptist Church in Virginia, one of the oldest black churches in America, founded under a grove of trees in 1776. And the sound of this bell will be echoed by others in houses of worship and town squares all across this country. An echo of the ringing of bells that signaled emancipation more than a century and a half ago. The sound and the anthem of American freedom. From the inspiration of President John F. Kennedy to that of President Barack Obama, hashtag words matter, thoughts for our time. Staying home for COVID-19, I'm Janice Adams. For more about today's show, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. We who believe in freedom We who believe in freedom cannot rest until the until the killing of black men, black mothers' sons is as important as the killing.